Friday evening, Julie and I were just reviewing some of the verses we'll be looking at today, and we were commenting that if nothing physical, uh, if, if no other physical horizontal benefit ever came our way for the rest of our lives, if we received nothing else that was considered, at least from an earthly level, good, we would still be very blessed people. Because our sins have been forgiven eternally. We're going to be with God, and we are his people. We're his children. We're his sons and daughters. And as that just kind of overwhelmed us, we were just talking as a couple. Uh, It it was just one of those moments where as as a husband and wife, you just found yourself worshiping the Lord. Like if, if nothing else ever good happens to us, we're still blessed because of our union with Christ. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We actually believe that's true. I hope that you are seeing in these few weeks in this passage in Ephesians 1 that if nothing ever good happened to you from this day forward, from a horizontal, physical level, you would still say, man, We are blessed people because we're in Christ, secure in God. And I hope that's what happens to you today in an increasing fashion, that God just is maximized in your vision and that you realize what a blessing it is to be blessed in Christ. So take your Bibles and locate Ephesians 1. And let's take some more time to see all the wonderful blessings that are ours from God through Christ, by His Spirit. I say it that way because really, not only is verse 3 of Ephesians 1 a very Trinitarian verse, 3 through 14 is very Trinitarian as well. And we've kind of put together a simple chart. I'll show it again to you this week. Here's kind of how we're looking at these blessings that are ours in Christ. Just kind of take a snapshot of this, keep it in front of you. Uh, This shows us that we are blessed by the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. All the blessings that come to God's children are from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, and they all should result to the praise of God's glorious grace. In fact, that phrase is mentioned at the end of each section that describes the, the specific aspect of, of that person of the Trinity's work. So it's a very Trinitarian section, and we're looking at, at these blessings that are ours from God through Christ by His Spirit. Last week we saw the first one, which was that we were chosen in Christ. A beautifully difficult concept to grasp. And the church said, amen, Amen. you know it is. But we relish in the fact that God has done this for us. And this week we're going to see part two of that concept. A different word is used, but I do think they point at the same general target. And I'll explain that to you as we walk through mainly verses five and six this morning. So before we begin, let's read three through six and just kind of, again, Get the landscape of, of, of what is being said here about these blessings in Christ and especially this first one. Here's Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That was last week. Now here's this week's. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so last week we saw how we were chosen in Christ. This week we're going to see how we are predestined through Christ. I think it's just an echo of being chosen in Christ. So this message is really part two of being chosen in Christ. Let me bring some more definition and explanation to this phrase, being predestined in Christ. First of all, you may be wondering, Todd, what is the difference? Before I explain the difference, let me just review for you briefly uh, what we said about being chosen in Christ last week. This will help us understand the difference. We said last week, based on verse 4, that if God doesn't take sovereign action first in choosing us, that's the word used in the Bible, then there is no spiritual standing later, and the words used in the text are holy and blameless. And if you were to insert doctrines in place of these words, here's what we learned last week. That if God doesn't take sovereign action first in election, there's no spiritual standing later in justification or presentation. It's kind of a good way to kind of get your hands around what's being taught in these verses. Verse 5 is going to show us today something very similar but with a little different angle. So let's go ahead and get our take-home truth up front, can we? We're going to see today that if God doesn't take sovereign action first, and we're going to see the word predestined, then there's no spiritual sonship later, and we're going to see the word adoption. And so again, here's these doctrines. If God doesn't take sovereign action first in predestination, then there's no spiritual sonship later in adoption. And perhaps this is where I can best explain the difference in these two concepts. I don't think election and predestination really exist like this. I think they're very similar. They aim at the same target. But I I think really predestination is a larger concept. And election would be what we call a subset of predestination. I think that's the best way to see it. Let me give you an example from the text. In the text, it says to us that God has predestined us as sons. And you can use the word daughters here. That's just a universal term to describe God's children, his family. So I'll probably use the phrase sons and daughters a lot today. The text says to us, God predestined us as sons and daughters to be adopted. And then what kind of sons and daughters he's called people to be holy and blameless. And he's going to accomplish that. Does that make sense? So here's this larger scope, predestined us as sons. And the smaller, more specific scope is what kind of sons and daughters? Sons that are holy and blameless. And so I think the difference is one of scope to be just... Uh, succinctly clear with you. So if you get asked over coffee, hey, what's the difference or how do you explain the difference? Just say this, that the difference in predestination and election is one of scope. One has a larger view and one has a more specific aim. I think the other references of the Bible that talk about predestination bear witness to this, by the way. The word predestined is used six times in the New Testament. Here's two of them and see if you can kind of pick this up. In Acts 4.28, uh, the apostles in the early church were experiencing intense persecution. They were told not to preach. They were threatened, persecuted. And so they later went to pray to God about this. And as they're rehearsing the crucifixion, this is Acts 4, 28. As they're rehearsing the crucifixion, they say, Lord, we remember when everyone was gathered around this time and they accomplished everything you had predestined to take place. So they realized that everything that happened in the crucifixion was by the plan of God. It's an interesting word, isn't it? They, they can't have this larger view and scope of all things happening by his decree. In Romans 8, 29, here's how this verse goes. He says that those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, 
he called to be conformed to the image of his son. See, there you see predestined and then conformity. Same idea as if predestination and then election to be holy and blameless. So I hope you see that. I think that's the, the difference is in scope. And I think the Bible bears that out. So in light of that, in light of these two words, let's look more closely now at how Paul would talk about predestination. It's in verse 5. I'll read it for you once again. Here it is all together. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's the main phrase right there. Now watch these modifying phrases. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now let's look first of all at the main action that's taking place here. What's the main verb? It's the phrase, he predestined us. It's much like the previous one where it says he chose us. Again, these are echoes. They lean to the same target. But predestined has a little different meaning in that it, it, it kind of has the idea of something that's marked out in advance. In fact, this is word, its etymology is that it was used to describe people who would go to a property and mark out its boundaries long before any work was ever done there or even purchases. And so the idea of, 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 watch this now, predetermining, which I think is an odd usage of a prefix. Like if you determine something, that's pretty authoritative, isn't it? But this word has the idea of predetermining. I don't know how you do that, but I think it's the, the sense is, the, the idea is to give us some sense of, wow, there is a sovereign authority in place here that God is exercising. He's marking things out. He's predetermining. The word can often be uh, used for ordaining. Again, if you ordain it, that alone is sufficient for me to know you're in charge, Right? But then you foreordain, you, you in advance mark it out. It means to cause, to appoint. And so again, this word just has a larger scope and it, it clearly shows God's sovereign right to mark out and to determine and to ordain how things are decreed and how they occur. And in this case, he's going to explain for us that what God marked out, what he determined was our adoption as sons through Christ. So let's examine now all the phrases that modify the main verb here. We're seeing God's action, right? There are six things that modify that. Now I'm going to do these very quickly. So have your pen ready, your journals, your Bible, you want to mark in here. Uh, we're, and I'm serious, you'll be surprised how quickly. We could spend a week on each of these, and I kind of want to, but it's probably best that we just kind of mention them in light of how they modify the main verb. So watch this. Predestination's motive is the first two words, in love. This tells us why God did what he did. Now, let me address something off the bat. Some of you are saying, Todd, in my translation, the words in love are connected to what's before it. That it says we're holy and blameless in love. Your translation is different. Are we reading from the same Bible here? Because <laughs> mine connects it to the idea of being predestined. Well, either way, just relax, breathe easy, we're good. You could call this a swing phrase. Remember, there, there's no punctuation uh, or periods in the original manuscript. So often the English translators do the best they can to figure out, you know, what goes where they do it by, you know, uh, seeing what matches as far as usage. In this case, I think the phrase in love is closer in location to the verb predestined. I think grammatically we could show this, this is a very good translation. But either way, if you think it attaches to what's before it with God's choosing to be holy and blameless... Aren't you glad that's done in love? And if you think it goes to the predestining of God adopting us as sons and daughters, aren't you glad that's done in love? So whichever action you want to say connects to his love, just be thankful for it. God does both of those in great love for people. 
in great love for sinners. And see, I think what this does is this attacks our sense that God is acting in some capricious manner or he has some kind of arrogance in his uh, authority. Nothing is further from the truth. And I will state to you boldly and clearly, both election and predestination have their roots in the gracious favor and love of God. Humans should not point to God and say, who do you think you are in marking out this plan of redemption? We should say, God, thank you for showing mercy to sinners. So everything about these two doctrines, and this one especially, finds its roots in the love of God. That's predestination's motive. Notice next, predestination's result. Quite frankly, it just says here, for adoption as sons. It's one word in the Greek language. By the way, the word adoption has as its root the word son. Did you know that? Not in our translation, but in the original language, the very beginning part of the word is the word son. And it means to bring someone who's not biologically part of your family into your family. And this is the the result of God's marking out of his predetermining action that we will be sons and daughters of God. Now, when you hear the word adoption, it's a beautifully rich word in our culture. A lot of our members have adopted people and children, and it's beautiful. But I want to tell you this, that how this word was heard in the first century is not how you see it and act upon it today. In fact, adoption in that culture was probably something used more like a leveraging tool. And in one sense, you could say they just were using children or teenagers or whoever they would adopt for their own benefit. For instance, emperors would often see their own offspring killed. Enemies would, you know, target them because if they could kill the emperor's offspring, it reduces the chance that the lineage will continue. It minimizes their legacy. The chances of overthrow are much greater. And so often an emperor's children were targeted for murder. And so the emperor would adopt other young men of military might, of economic influence, to try to continue uh, you know, his legacy or his empire. It was just all for his own name's sake, so to speak, in a, in a selfish way. Uh, girls were rarely, if ever, adopted. Women in the Greek culture were never even allowed to adopt. And typically, sometimes adoptions were done so that the inheritance that was in someone's name would not get misused or or, or abused, and so they would just adopt in order to protect themselves financially. There's all kinds of ways in which adoption in this culture would not have been heard like you hear today. So when Paul would write, God has marked out a, an opportunity and a plan for sinners to be adopted, what a stark thing for the reader to, to, to hear. Like, you mean God's adopting us? Here's why. Because God does not need us. God doesn't need you to continue his legacy. <laughs> He doesn't need you to have relationship. He doesn't need you to uh, protect his inheritance. No, there's there's nothing that you and I bring to the table that God needs. He's like, man, I'm glad I got that one done. They're going to really be a big help. That's not happening. But yet God is graciously in love adopting sinners into his family. And and watch this. You never adopted someone who wasn't at least going to help your image and reputation in this first century. In fact, slaves were not even considered people, so they were never adopted. And what is God doing? God is adopting church. God is adopting sinners. God is making his former enemies 
his sons and daughters. I hope your heart is becoming increasingly overwhelmed by the plan that God has marked out. This is what God has done. He has marked out, determined, he has foreordained that his enemies would become his family. (laughs) How does that occur? It says here, he's predestined us in love for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Here's the agency or even the avenue of our adoption. It's through Jesus. And this is very important because otherwise we would never be adopted. There has to be someone who stands in for us, who who wins the battle. Now, Now watch this. When it comes to our inheritance in Christ, understand that you are an heir with Christ. You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter. But the Bible describes you also as an heir of Christ. Now, how is that possible if you didn't do any of the work? It's because Jesus Christ has done the work for you. He won the battle. That's why, watch this, being an heir is way better than being a conqueror. You say, Todd, what do you mean? That's what Paul says in Romans. He says, we are more than conquerors. And see, my mind says, no, I want the conqueror title. Most guys do, right? High testosterone, give me the conqueror title. Paul says, no, you're something more than that. So what's more than a conqueror? The only thing that more than a conqueror is an heir. It's the person who gets all the benefits and doesn't do any of the work. And because Christ has done the work for us. And so we're adopted into his family through his son, and we have access to all the benefits that Christ has. In fact, if you find this hard to believe, understand that in Hebrews and Romans, Christ is called our elder brother. It's the scripture's way, again, of pointing to this fact. Man, there's an access given to those who are in Christ that's unexplainable and, and rich and gracious, merciful. God gives all of his children this access through his son, Jesus. Isn't that glorious? This is what's available because we're in Christ. And this is what God has marked out. Remember the main verb and those, that, these things modify it. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then listen to the next phrase here. According to the purpose of his will. This would be predestination's basis. And of all the phrases here, I, I, I think this is my favorite. Here's why. Because... In this instance, I think there's an element missing from the translation that I think other translations give well. The sense of the purpose of his will has with it the idea that his purpose is a very good purpose. In fact, some translations say this, according to the good pleasure of his will. And that brings more of the nuance of what the word means. In other words, watch this. When God set out and marked a plan to adopt his enemies as his family through his son, This is just in keeping with what he's always intended to do. That's kind of what the phrase is saying. In other words, it's in line with God's gracious intentions all along. Don't you love hearing that? It's like, wow, God wasn't surprised and thought of some plan B or C. It's always been his will, his intention, his providential and sovereign right to adopt people, sinners, into his family as his sons and daughters. That's what he's up to. Man, hallelujah. Hallelujah. So this is not some afterthought or some like, oh, look what we get now. It's always been God's intention to bring sinners into his family as his children. 
I hope God is just becoming bigger and bigger and uncontainable to you. Let's keep reading. That's predestination's basis. And then it says here, this is done to the praise of his glorious grace. This is predestination's end game. In other words, when, when God does present us holy and blameless as his adopted children, as heirs, as his sons and daughters, watch this, we'll be on display and will resound to God's glorious grace. In other words, they won't say, wow, George, man, you did a fine job with your life. No, what all of eternity will say is like, man, Jordan was a sinner. And look what God did in that life. David was a sinner. Look what God did in that life. Kelly was a sinner. Look what God did. Are you following me? And you put your name in there. This is what creatures, angels, people will say for all eternity. Wow, how did that person ever become that person? How did you go from sinner to son, from sinner to daughter? It's because of God's glorious grace. The word glorious there modifies grace. It doesn't modify you or me, amen? And so it's much like standing in front of a trophy case. And we've heard people say at times that we're trophies of grace. You know, when you see the trophies in the case, you don't think, man, I really love that plaque and that gold figurine. Like that's an amazing uh, figure. No, you're always thinking about the person that, that had the skill or the ability to earn the trophy. Like, wow, that must have been a great game or that must have been an amazing shot or amazing uh, athletic uh, you know, uh, contest. Same thing with a house. You go into a house and you see someone's uh, craftsmanship. You don't say, wow, I, I, I really like um, that wood. Now, you may like the wood they chose, but you don't give the wood the glory. You don't say, man, I, this flooring is awesome, and I just want to sit in and just worship the floor. Yeah. Your minds, even if you love the materials, the craftsmanship, your mind is taken back to the builder, the architect, the designer. Are you with me? Same thing with a piece of art. You don't say, I love that canvas. Or, wow, that, that you know, black ink there, I'm falling in love with that stuff. You don't say that. You're like, uh, the creativity of the artist, the artistry, this is the point of this. That is, as eternity beholds God's work in sinners, then for ages upon ages, they'll say, what an amazing God who could take sinners and turn them into sons. And what's more amazing is this was his good pleasure all along. This was all done in love. And God will just be more and more praised and glorified and maximized. And how does all this happen? It's according to predestination source. Look at the last phrase here. This is all possible because he's blessed us in the beloved. Do you see that? Now, hold your finger there. The last phrase of verse 6, in the beloved. And I want you to kind of draw your eyes back to the phrase in Christ in verse 3. Because what you have now are are the bookends of this first blessing. You see what he says in verse 3? Blessed be God and Father who has blessed us in Christ. So that's where everything begins. And he says you've been chosen, you've been predestined, and all this is because God has blessed you, verse 6, in the beloved. And so he just kind of bookends this beautiful first blessing, which kind of has two aspects to it with this wonderful confidence that it comes because we're in Christ. And so those are the six modifying phrases of the main verb, predestined. 
Now, I realize we flew through that, but there's a reason. Because I want to take some time and, and in a moment give you some pastoral, I would call them reflections or maybe some realizations from this week and last week. But let me first of all just make sure you kind of get the point of verses 5 and 6. Let's read it again. I want to read this over you. And let the power and weight of the scripture kind of like get, finger, get fingers and put, it, put them around your heart and let it just kind of massage your heart. Let it get a grip on your soul. And though you may not understand it all and can't figure it out and you wonder, how does this happen? How does he choose and yet I choose? How does he mark out and yet I feel like I came to Christ? Yeah, we can ponder that for eternity. But let us just marvel and relish in these doctrines. So here's the second one that we discussed this week. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Isn't that just grand, marvelous, and majestic? And again, it points to what the truth of this verse is teaching us. Similar to last week's truth, that if God doesn't take sovereign action first, and we'll say this time in predestination, then there's no spiritual sonship later in adoption. So do you see how these truths are, are really, they correlate and yet one is larger? If God doesn't take sovereign action first to say, I will mark out a people who will be my sons and daughters in love from time, before the world began, yes, this is what I will do. And I'll not only mark them out as my family, I will help them become holy and blameless before me. This is always God's action. And I realize this pushes against the grain of the American entrepreneurial spirit. I realize that. I get the kickback from my preaching on these two weeks. There's consequences to it. So be it. I think it's healthy for us to realize that there are moments when the scripture wants us to exit stage right or stage left so that God owns salvation. I think it's Psalm 2 that said salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to him. And my preaching this week and last week is just aimed at helping you not deny that we make a choice, but to realize who makes the first choice, who marks us out, who plans redemption, who gives us the desire to choose. It is God. And aren't we thankful that he takes the sovereign action first? Because if he didn't, there'd be no sons and daughters and none of us would be holy and blameless. Now, if I can just for a moment, I want to help make this somewhat easier for you. There's not a single person in this room. I mean, there's not a single breathing human being in this room who would say this. I'm really glad my parents listened to me and, and had me. Like, what you're laughing at now is what you should do. That's a ludicrous, insane statement. No one says, yeah, I was knocking on the, on the door of their, you know, their bedroom one night. Now, I'll be, I'll be careful here. Don't worry. <laughs> that weekend, that retreat, that holiday, that vacation. Hey, Mom and Dad, could you get busy, please, with some intimacy? I'm waiting to be born. Didn't happen. Nobody here would say, Todd, uh, I'm the reason I'm here, okay? <laughs> no. Your parents hold the cards, period. Wouldn't you agree? Right. 
which is why I think birthday celebrations are odd that we celebrate the person being born. They didn't do any of the work, right? Every mom here says amen, amen on that, right? You didn't tap on your mother's womb and say, hey, I'm, I'm getting a little cramped in here. Or I don't really like that choice of hospital. Could you go to that one? Or I don't like the fact that I'm born in this coming state. Can we go to another state? None of those choices were yours. None of them. Have you made choices now that you're born? Yes. Have you exercised uh, your agency of, of decision making? Yes. But you're not here because of anything you did. So why do we struggle to say spiritually, I'm not here, uh, that, that God did all the work in salvation? Why do we struggle with that? I don't know the answer to that question, by the way. But I'm putting this before you because often, like in John 3, spiritual birth is analogous to physical birth. And Jesus said in John 3 that when you're born again, you're born of the spirit and of water. No man knows how the wind blows. It just blows where it wants to. That's why I'm saying to you, God has marked out a plan. He's called his people and his spirit's blowing. So you get it physically. I'm just asking you to try to get this spiritually. Salvation is first and foremost uh, the work of God. Now in light of that, I want to just give you, as I land the plane, a couple of pastoral reflections. I thought about last week and this week, and I know it's been some hard doctrinal preaching. I know we've come at you pretty strong. Um, and so I want to kind of back up a little bit and maybe just maybe be less teacher-like and more shepherd-like for a moment. And I want to give you two what I think are life-changing realizations that, that you can draw from these two doctrines, from these two to three verses, three or four verses, things you can say with, with assurance and confidence. Number one, God desires relationship. Isn't that just uh, comforting to know? Yes. That, that, that God desires to know his creation. Now, first of all, we see this in the garden in the fact that he made a garden for the people he created. It was a beautiful place. And he gave them parameters, yes, but they could exist and he would commune with them perfectly. And by the way, God did not do this because he needed them. God was in perfect, complete unity with himself. The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, were in, were in um, incredible relationship. It was, it was perfect. There was, there was no crack or slight problem in their relationship. They, they don't need anything. They're, they're perfect in and, of, in and of himself. And I need to just say singular because God is one in three persons. And so God wasn't like, man, I'm, I'm a little lonely today. Can I, can I make some people? No. But out of his own love and gracious favor, God created man and woman. And he put them in the garden and made it beautiful for him. And he wanted to commune with them. But man sinned. Broke that fellowship. And guess who took the first step and came after man? God did. He came to him, as the writer of Genesis says, in the cool of the day. And he's asking, hey, Adam, where are you? I long to be in relationship with you. And Adam was hiding. So you see what sin does to us. It doesn't make us run towards God. It makes us hide from God. But God comes after us. God took the first step in seeking Adam when he sinned. God took the first step in sacrificing for Adam's sin. 
An animal was sacrificed, coats of skin were given, and God clothed Adam and Eve, as expressly said in Genesis. So you tell me who did all the work in that first relationship. <laughs> you see, God desires relationship. Romans 5, 8 says that, that when we were still sinners, Christ showed his love for us when he died for us. You see, by definition, demonstration, and decree, it's clear that God loves sinners, and he wants a relationship with them. But here's what's even better news. God accomplished relationship. And again, I say to you, this is by definition, demonstration, and decree. God has acted to create a family. He has moved in time and space to bring sinners into a relationship with himself. Because he desires that, he has acted to accomplish that. And we stand as the glad recipients of God's work. John 1.12 speaks to this so well. Listen to John 1.12 here for a moment. It shows us God's desire and action towards this relationship. To all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, God gives the right to become children of God. And that, that's, that's a family type of word, isn't it? He gives you the right. That's the idea of adoption, this legal, declarative, loving um, um, platform to say, I belong to God. It's because of Christ. You believe in his name. He, begin, he gives you the right to become children of God. Watch this next phrase now, verse 13. Who were born, that's a family kind of uh, uh, word, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right. So it's not by your biology. It's not by your behavior. It is by God's power. And his marking out in advance of this plan to bring sinners, his enemies, into a relationship as his sons and daughters. Now the question is, how does that occur? And the answer in a word is the cross. At the cross, God accomplished relationship. And he made a way for sinners to be sons and daughters. This is why, and listen extremely carefully from this for sure right now. This is why the cross is the focal point of every New Testament writer's exhortations. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was one place Paul was putting every bit of his boasting. All of his ships were at one place, the cross of Christ. He said to the Corinthians that when I came to you, I didn't care about the wisdom of men or the rhetoric of the Greeks. I wanted to know Christ and him crucified. He said, this is what we're going to preach. Amen. He said later that the world would call this foolishness. They think the wisdom of God is just uh, is, is, is junk. But he said to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. Paul talked about how the gospel was the first thing on his lips. And so if you ever wonder why we say around here that every week we desire to celebrate the gospel, it's because the cross, listen church, the cross is the focal point of election and predestination. That's right. And sometimes we get 
caught up in debating the doctrines, we shall let our eyes instead go to the focal point, the apex of both these doctrines, the cross, where God accomplished the calling and the marking out and the relationship, where God purchased a people to himself through the work of his son, Jesus. So, so when I think about the God who has chosen and the God who has predestined, I, here's what I think. God desires relationship. And God has accomplished relationship. And man, my heart is comforted and motivated and stirred to know God. And how does that occur? By coming to the cross. And I would say to every person here, your relationship either begins at the cross or is deepened at the cross. No one is removed from the cross as the place to have a relationship with God. It's where it begins and it's where it's, where it's deepened. We are a cross-tethered people. We cling to the old rugged cross. Christ would say that if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me, bearing it daily. In other words, death must be what we're willing to endure. Our Savior did. And so the cross is just integral to every bit of our life. So if you're wondering, Todd, what do I do with, with, with these doctrines, these, these blessings? I love them, but I, I can't get my hand around them. Let them point you to the cross. And if you've never trusted Christ, realize there's a God who desires relationship with you. So much that he's marked out from before the foundation of the world a plan to redeem sinners and enemies and make them his children. That's an awesomely wonderful God. And he's not just expressing a desire. He has actually accomplished that by sending his son to take your place and pay your price, be your substitute. God did that in the person of Christ. And now to all who believe in his name, God says you have the right to say, I'm a son and daughter of God. And enjoy this relationship. All of that's because of Christ's work on the cross. So I hope that in these two weeks we have just nudged you ever so, perhaps slightly, or maybe we've kicked you ever so gently <laughs> towards the cross of Christ, the apex of our election and predestination. This is perhaps why George Bernard would write that great song that we love so much. In fact, it's been voted as America's favorite hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. It's over 100 years old written about 1913 in a small town in Michigan, in fact. He was asking this question, how can I get to know God in a deeper way? And as he read through the scriptures, he realized the preeminence of the cross and all of God's action in, in time past as, as well as in the present. All of it seemed to center on this, this one place where God's love for sinners and God's action for them all seemed to culminate, the cross of Christ. And over the next several weeks, he penned the words that described this old rugged cross. The last verse is especially appropriate for us as a church. In this culture in which we live, he wrote this, to the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Culture wants you to get rid of something this horrific. We don't need that. Oh, my friend, we need the cross. He says, I'll ever be true to this cross, its shame and reproach gladly bear, till he calls me someday to my home far away where his glory 
forever I'll share. That sounds very similar to these doctors, doesn't it? God marking out a plan, accomplishing it in spite of the foolishness of men, and then moving us along that plan, presenting us faultless before his throne, and sharing his glory with us. And so he writes in that course, So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down. You know there's not you, some of you. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.